0: Peter, this will be fun. Can I reenact something that happened just seven days ago? Oh, yes. That was just a week. Just <laughs> about a week, yeah. This will be a real theater of the mind, but um, okay. here we go. All right. I was sitting outside in a socially distant writing session with my writing partner, friend of the show, Johnny G.D. Excellent. when a bee, an adorable bee, flew by my face. And as I'm an adult, I calmly waved it away and went on with my writing. <laughs> I didn't do that, Pete. <laughs> I got that slightly wrong. No, what actually happened was I screamed, ah, get out of here, Fuck off, nature. And that was like my instinct was to scream, ah, get out of here, f*** off, nature, While like wild. And that was a B, Pete. As yeah. you reminded us in just an episode or two ago... We live in a world of murder hornets, and what were they, manslaughter worms? They were were hammerhead murder worms. And yet I'm still treating bees like they're air sharks. Like it's very embarrassing, to say the least. And so during our podcast of anxiety, sometimes we, every now and again, like to share something that might help mitigate our anxious or fearful feelings. So I looked up bees, because I know bees are super important to our environment and vital and stuff like that, right? Sure you want to see what i found pete yeah i'd love to look at your screen
1: please (gasps) what's that pete pete what are they doing (laughs) because what they're doing right now is something that i didn't i thought only humans did certain species of bees take naps in flowers after they get
0: all pollen drunk (sighs) this is true a, oh actually, goodness. in your state, a photographer in Portland uh took this picture. He said that uh, one of them they were ah. staggering around like they were drunk, which they get when they after they pollinate, and one walked over like staggered over from one flower and curled up next to this other one and they just took a nap for like a couple hours this is a of two globe mallow bees covered in pollen uh nestled together having a little bumble snooze and i just think that that
1: is so charming do you have any (sighs) thoughts (laughs) i don't know how to have thoughts about something as adorable as that i just don't right that is absolutely fantastic I'm gonna. If you have you a podcast to put it somewhere, if you have a podcast app that will support it, look at it right now because I'll change the artwork on the show to this because oh. it's that good, and we'll put a link in the show notes uh, if you don't. Fantastic. That's so. Anyways, crazy.
0: My day started with. Um, F-off nature and it ended with Bees taking naps and flowers And I don't have anything else to say about that Pete.
1: How do we do a show About poop after that <laughs>
0: <laughs> Well We're about to find out
2: <laughs> Cue the music And there's nobody out there Lucky like, like I am. There's nobody out
0: welcome to what's that smell a sometimes funny podcast about humans and their anxieties I'm Tommy Metz III. and I'm Pete Wright and every week we each drag one of our deepest darkest anxieties into the light to share it learn about it
1: and hopefully laugh about it with all of you
0: now is the time to reach out to us send us the story of your anxieties to something stinky at what's that smell.net again something stinky at what's that smell.net you can be as anonymous as you want and we will talk about it Pete
1: anything else Become a panic pal. Get a sticker.
0: More later. Wow. Wow. Okay, we'll talk about that later. But in the meantime, I'll go first. Way back in season two in an episode titled The Case of Calamity U, you talked about your anxious feelings involving school. Do you remember that? I've been thinking about it since. Ever since, <laughs> as you listen to that when you're trying to go to sleep. Yeah, every night. I remember telling you about the common anxiety dreams I still have to this day, about searching for a class I can't find, mm-hmm. to take a test that I'm not ready for. Well, I don't know if you know this, but in these COVID-tastic days, I found myself with a little more free time on my hands than usual. So I re-entered the nightmare factory of academia voluntarily. What? Why would you do that? Because I want to get smarty. How's it working so far? <laughs> it's been Great. And I mean this, that's it's been good. really great. Oh,
1: man, that was a hard left turn to sincerity.
0: Right. <laughs> For the past <laughs> 10 weeks, I've been taking a course from UCLA Extension called the Sociology of Mass Communication. And as my annoyed friends will attest to, I have found it fascinating and I like to talk about it way too much. <laughs> Spoiler alert, I'm going to be bringing up some of the anxious issues that the class has brought up in our mediated world later in the season. But not now. Because for now, I just want to focus on something I've been dealing with about the class itself versus what the class has been teaching me. You talked about school anxiousness in general, and I'd like to narrow the focus to something I'm dealing with right now, this week.
1: Great. Excited. Yeah, no, I'm, it's, it's real talk.
0: Bees, Pete. No, we already <laughs> did bees. This isn't about bees. Pete, how do you feel about writing papers? When was the last time you had to write an academic paper? Do you remember your feelings about it?
1: Yeah, I de- I, I'm, I'm much more of a fiction guy. <laughs> no sources. <laughs> sources trip me right up. If I have to oh, tell you it, just want to free write it? Yeah, I just want to lie. Uh, no, I you know, I'm okay at it. I got pretty good at it uh, early in college, and then I switched over to journalism, and that, you know, you hone some skills. And so uh, I think I'm okay at it now. I was terrible at it in high school. Terrible, terrible. But uh, I'm pretty good at it, I, I think. How it, did you get good at it? Uh, you said home skills. Just practice, practice, well, practice. Well, you just practice a lot. You just write a lot, a lot of short stories, uh, you know, news stories, uh, where you are, you know, you're constantly uh, checking sources and keeping a rigorous sort of uh, bibliographic sort of history book of all the things that you study and learn. And yeah, and I, I just think, uh, I think there are some habits that that cross over there. And so, I by the end of college, by my sort of junior senior year, I was I was pretty good at it. I didn't, I didn't have Excellent. a whole lot of, of anxiety about that. But what you are te- asking me right now is, uh, it, 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 like, it puts me back to when I was 20 and right. I had that skill. And suddenly right. I'm feeling like I'm standing in a tank slowly filling with water <laughs> from the toes up. I'm realizing I haven't done it in a long, so long time. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, well, I'm I, yeah. Mm.
0: Let me give you my quick backstory. I was a humanities major with an emphasis in English, so my entire life was papers in college. Yeah. I don't remember them giving me a ton of stress because as an English major, that's just sort of the natural order things. But I have a paper for this extension course due in less than a week. It's actually due on Monday. And it is stressing me out. (laughs) This will be uh, the second paper that we've had to write for the course, and my approach avoidance behavior is through the roof, and I'm procrastinating getting started on it in a way that I haven't been doing for the course as a whole. I've been really attaboying and running at this course full speed, and I'm not sure why I'm so incredibly stressed out. I'm doing very well in the class, and I got 19 out of 20 points for my first paper, and I'm taking this class for my own edification. I'm not doing this to become Doctor of Sociology of, yeah. of something—that's not a thing. Yeah, I guess well, not. It it absolutely, is a thing. A doctor yeah. of Sociology, but yeah, that shows you're not in.
1: a candidate for it yet. But okay,
0: <laughs> I, I'm really struck out. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, my thesis. Um, my oral defense is this afternoon. Um, anyways, I'm taking it for my own. So all of that to be said, the risks could not be lower, and yet I am really, really stressing out. Now, one of the big problems I'm having is the professor wants a bold thesis. And I don't have one yet. Or I'm afraid mine isn't bold
1: enough. No, you just write and your thesis, and then you highlight it, and you hit Command B. <laughs> See what I did That's there? That's why I
0: only got, I got 19 out of 20, because I, <laughs> I, I
1: italicized
0: my thesis in the first paper. And she was like, nope. I double underlined it. <laughs> um. So, okay, so now that you know that I... Yes, because... It feels like a muscle that I haven't hadn't yeah. used, yeah. And I was just sort of, and so, but the fact that I've already written it, I just don't know why this one is so hard.
1: I got it. I got it. I can you at least I can it? at least talk to you about why it's giving me anxiety right now, and I can't stop twisting on my wobble board.
0: <laughs> okay, go ahead.
1: Because uh, even though you've already written a paper, because the, your ex- enthusiasm and excitement when we've talked about your class before. Yeah over the last couple of weeks, has all been rooted in how enthusiastic you are about the material, about reading and ingesting and taking it all in. It's like so great to be exposed to all these wonderful things. And it has been a significant amount of reading. A significant amount of reading. But there's a lot (laughs) of joy that comes from like learning and being exposed to these new ideas. Huge. It's great. And when you have to write a paper about it, you have to demonstrate that you have actually engaged in it that your brain is capable of taking all this in and regurgitate regurgitating these ideas in a way that other people can understand other people who are professionals in the field and i think more so than a test which is just like you know writing facts right an, an academic paper like this is asking you to demonstrate integration and that is terrifying because what if you can't what if you don't what if you aren't that paralyzes that paralyzes me as an adult like right. when when you already live with anxiety and you feel like the system that you have to trust is a system you can't trust yet like you don't do it enough to demonstrate that you have any capability at it and I feel like that's terrifying. That would immediately kick off late onset propulsion. Like I would do what you're doing and I would wait until midnight <laughs> the night before and then I would start I riding. Know. Yeah, and then it's like a <laughs> rocket ship. I right. and
0: I really and I actually that's what happened with my First paper is, again, I did well on it, and I liked the paper, but I did it all in one day, yeah, the day that it was due, and so I so ran out of gas that my conclusion, (laughs) uh, what we had to do is we had to compare in depth four different news sources uh, on the same day at the same time and talk about, like, depth, coverage, variety, all of this stuff, Mm -hmm. and... The paper was about, I think, 13 pages long, maybe. And my conclusion was maybe half a paragraph. And it pretty much said, well, that's the news. Like, I ran out of gas so significantly. <laughs> the
1: academic equivalent of jazz hands?
0: <laughs> totally. Yeah, I think my last paragraph said, look behind you. And then I was just like, and then I just ended the paper. But luckily, she overlooked the yeah. fact that the conclusion was terrible. Um No, what you're saying makes a ton of sense. And even while you're saying it, I came to a realization. I think I'm trying to accidentally tie everything together. Yeah. And it's a 10-week course with we have read notebooks and notebooks and notebooks full of stuff. And so maybe I'm feeling like I'm... And I'm taking the words bold thesis as a little bit too strong. Actually, I looked something up. i looked up things to try to help myself about writing anxiety. Spoiler alert. There is a ton (laughs) out there. So I am not alone. Um, But the idea that I was afraid that my thesis isn't bold enough because I don't really have one, this connected to something I read in an article from the Writing Center from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. They say writers can seek, quote, flow, which usually entails some sort of breakthrough followed by a beautifully coherent outpouring of knowledge. Flow is both a possibility— Most people experience it at some point in their writing lives, but it is largely a myth. Inevitably, if you write over a long period of time, and for many different situations, you will encounter obstacles. That's very helpful for me to read, because it reminded me I've been wrongly waiting for this earth-shattering revelation to pop into my brain, and I will rewrite sociology and everything to just flow out of me, and that puts a lot of pressure on myself for an unrealistic situation. That's usually just not how it works. Truly.
1: Writing, you know, I, I remember this experience in graduate school like the the whole issue of writing academic papers at a high level is it has to happen one sentence at a time my experience is if i find flow i've also unearthed a lot of crap like i write page (laughs) after page very beautifully quickly and the result the next morning is that's terrible that's nonsense Right. right. It's, it, you know, writing is crafted and it, the, the, it doesn't like the, the writer once said, you know, uh, true writing doesn't begin until editing. So sometimes you just have to vomit words on the paper. Um, right. And, and then start really shaping it. But I, I totally get that experience because you, you want to you want to create something that's going to wow the institution. Right, Right. you're sort of well because I, I admire her. I admire
0: the professor so much, and I've loved the class so much. It's like I want to really, I don't know, stand out. But what I'm not a
1: doctor, and let me ask you, I'm not going to let me ask you this as that that teacher-student relationship. Like you fall right back into that groove. I mean, what you're what you're describing for me, it sounds a lot like like you want to impress her, but you also want to demonstrate that she's done a hell of a job, right? Right. Yes. You want to honor that relationship by doing the right stuff. That's interesting. I never thought about that. But yeah. And
0: she's so passionate about it. And I find that very... Intriguing and inspirational, and also I really have done all the work. I've done all the reading, yeah. and I did all the recommended reading. So part of it is also wanting to tap dance, yeah, for her. I think and show how can I show that I read every single thing and thought about it critically. Yeah, it's a lot of pressure to put on myself. It's a lot when of pressure. I am student nine. For her. Yeah, <laughs> we do not. We are not going off onto the. Uh,
1: well, you want to make like sure, sure that when you ask her out on a date at the end of class, she says yes, right? This is, isn't exactly. this end in a movie. Um, so, I did I tell you the subject the, of my very first academic paper? Uh, no, <laughs> I, I had this great idea. I was in the fifth grade, sixth grade. Oh. They wanted us to yeah. write a, our first like let's string a bunch of paragraphs together and come up okay. with like an eight. I think the target was like eight or ten pages, right? On a subject, yeah. I thought, this is going to be great. I'm going to, it was exactly that relationship. I remember Mrs. Milligan. I remember the entire experience. Oh, she assigned this thing. And I came back to my, to my, uh, uh, where I wrote down my, my sort of thesis, the topic that I wanted to write on. And she, she, I handed it to her in class one day and she turned it around. She looked at it. She read it. <laughs> it was one word. It was space. Oh. And she turned around and said, a little broad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I had to go back home and workshop it with my dad, and we came up with, a, a, I think, a better yet still incredibly broad topic, which was yeah. the Apollo space program. <laughs> and, oh, but still. But still. It has a focus. It, it's yeah. better. It has a focus. And that that is just it. Like, the fact that you have read so much, it you're developing one of the most important muscles, which is being able to stop reading. Right. At some right. point you have to, you have to be able to filter. And that's really, I, I, I applaud you. Cause I think that's really incredibly difficult and terrifying. I appreciate
0: it. I'm thinking about, I've already, I've written the conclusion, which is, do you like me? And then I'm going to have two boxes. <laughs> it says, yes, no, hope she doesn't write. Maybe, <laughs> um, Okay, so yes. So I've already identified that I have a bad habit of tackling large projects all at once, and that can lead to burnout. Yeah. And when I did some research on this, I did some more research, and I found it is extremely common. And health blog Go Ask Alice suggests writing a paper in several sittings. Of course. Yeah. That makes sense all the, in the world, and I'm going to be doing that. I already have plans for how to space it out. They uh, also, she, let's see, they had a whole bunch of different things, but I had two more just in case anyone, if we have students uh, that are listening to this, or if anyone has a big paper, these are two things that didn't really um, occur to me, and so I thought I'd share them if that's okay with you, Pete. Sure. Sure. One is actually one that you just said, that sometimes you have to vomit up words, your favorite word. Start writing even before you can envision your entire argument. Getting words down on paper may help you come up with the rest of your writing assignment. Try free writing or diagramming to inspire ideas. You already came up with that, and that's exactly true. I need to do it step-by-step. And most importantly, I need to start. And this other one is so obvious, it is, but it has literally never occurred to me, and I wanted to see if this was just like, oh, of course— compose different parts of your paper in order of ease you're not required to write in sequential order as long as the final product is well organized yep. some find it helpful to start with the sections that come naturally and move towards the more challenging parts that has never occurred to me really i've never written a different part of a paper and then go- i've done that when revising like yeah. revising certain parts but i've always written a paper Start to finish, I, I, I kinda felt like that's how you have to do it.
1: Let me tell you, I I think and and I think this is another one that I that I picked up in journalism school. So two two tricks I want to give you. Number one Please. is I, I would just say even if you don't know what the easiest parts are versus the hardest parts, just start yeah. with the meat of your paper first and write your conclusion and introduction at the end. Right. So you, you write the whole meat of the paper, write your conclusion, oh. and then go back and write your introduction. I think it is, it's, it's incredibly challenging. Once you've done this, it's hard to imagine writing an introduction first because you don't know what the paper ends up being about. Until you've written it, then you go back and write an introduction and it's like chef's kiss perfect because you've already written the paper, you know what the hell you're introducing. So that's interesting. That's number one. And uh, number two, if you have this opportunity, I don't know if foster is available, but if you have the opportunity, and this is one of the hardest things that you can you can do in editing, once you write the meat of your paper, have somebody else read it aloud to you. Right? Read Read it aloud aloud to to you, because I promise you, your ears are far better editors than your eyes. And when you hear your words read back to you, just have a little notepad and piece of paper and take notes on things you want to edit. And don't ask this other reader to make any judgments at all, because what the hell do they know about sociology? Just Just read it. Just read it. And occasionally, you might have to say, "Hey, stop and read that back again. Uh, make sure it flows well. Make sure there. I mean, you'll hear typos. You will hear typos that your eyes will not catch. <laughs> I promise you. I promise wow. you. It's an amazing, amazing thing for particularly for academic writing. And I don't. I. I. I think it's. Uh, yeah, it's really good. Huh? Look at that! All you right. didn't even think That's... that Old Pete would have any insight into this stuff, did ya? Oh, you you Pete, thought, oh, no, Old Pete, he is... just gets on his old horse and rides around a Shack. <laughs> <laughs> you can't get the horse out of the shack. It's been in there forever. It's ever. a shack horse. Well, this has
0: been very helpful, and I was expecting to be doing the teaching, but the teacher became the, the student, student. So thank you very much, Pete. <laughs> and my, I think I have a bold thesis now. I think I've decided Good. on one. It's going to just be a picture of bees taking a nap in a flower, and then the word discuss.
1: Weird. <laughs> 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 no.
2: <laughs>
1: One <laughs> construction of the ore pendente de Pisa, the Pisa Bell Tower, began eight hundred and forty years ago. The freestanding bell tower of the Cathedral of Pisa, known not for its incredible design and cylindrical structure, no, this tower is known for its nearly five-degree lean. That's right, the leaning tower of Pisa. It's like the hunchback of Notre Dame saying, Man, I'm a man. Do you hear me? I'm a man in here. We know you're a man, Quasimodo, but you just can't argue your most defining feature. It's written on the tin. The Tower of Pisa has survived four major earthquakes, and it still stands, consistently surprising civil engineers. Surface restoration has been ongoing, though, with 100-year stretches of no work at all. Engineer George Milanakis of the University of Bristol says it's actually the softness of the soil, the same soil that causes the tower to lean, that allows it to survive seismic event after seismic event. It reduces vibrations such that the tower doesn't shake during earthquakes. But the Pisa Bell Tower is the lucky one. Without foundational support, structures topple like the Leaning Tower of South Padre, a 31-story condominium that was imploded in 2009 because the reinforced core of the structure had sunk more than 14 inches in expansive soil and pulled itself apart. Or how about the Transcona Grain Elevator, a storage facility used by the Canadian Pacific Railway. Built in October 1913, the structure didn't last a single day before it started to collapse slowly into the ground, twisting itself over 27 degrees across its axis. Then there was the 13-storied building in Shanghai. The building completely collapsed, falling sideways rather than imploding. Investigators think the foundation failed when another project, an underground parking garage construction site, failed to take into consideration pressure differences and caused a section of the tower's flood wall to break apart. That's why you should consider becoming a what's-that-smell panic pal, because buildings aren't the only things that require support. We're not running a single advertisement this season. Instead, we're asking you for a single contribution of $35 to support all of Season 5. That means you're helping us offset the costs of our production, podcast hosting, and time, and becoming an integral part of this show. Plus, members are notified of our recording sessions and can join us for a live stream each week to watch along, in addition to getting access to finished episodes in a custom podcast feed early. Thanks for your support and for helping us build a strong foundation this season. And you Get a sticker. Tom. Mmm, Pete. What do you have there uh, lying on your desk? you have anything lying on your desk? Just pick up a thing. Anything. Pick up a thing. Show me a thing. Thermometer. Thermometer. All right. This is great. (laughs) This is great and appropriate of our uh, human-centered season. Uh, So it's a thermometer. It's an electronic thermometer. You use it for checking your temperature. How long do you have it? I do.
0: Um... Uh, if you remember from the COVID sessions, I got that first one from Amazon that spelled the word thermometer wrong. <laughs> this next one I got uh, probably about a month, two months ago, okay, a month or two, two months.
1: So let me ask you, at what point does that object cross the line between being useful and becoming trash? A thing that you would consider getting rid of? I
0: guess if it didn't work, if okay. it ran out of batteries or stopped working, I guess.
1: Okay. All right. I had is that this, a good answer. That's oh, a fine <laughs> answer. You're a fine human being. I had the, this dream the other night, and um, I'm going to tell you about it. Uh, I, and I, I actually had the the opportunity to uh, join a, a dream a, a psychotherapist who does dream work uh, on another Ooh. podcast, and and just pulled me apart. It was crazy. And and so I, this is a dream that I had, and I use the same sort of exercise that I use with this dream therapist, and and. it's amazing to me kind of what just happened so i want to tell you about the dream uh i was um my whole family we were here in my home and every time we would leave the home we would clone ourselves and so when we'd come back there would be two of us yeah and this happened uh over time and suddenly we realized that we each have to take the responsibility of disposing of our clones so that there's only one of us because the house can't sustain that many people and so um, we each had to kill our clones and my son Uh. took his clones and pushed them off the roof of the house and over and over and over just walking like lemmings off a cliff and my daughter was literally slashing her clones throats wrapping Uh. them up in old towels And duct tape. And the last thing I remember is her screaming, I'm out of tape. I'm out of tape. I need duct tape. And uh, because she, I don't remember how I was doing it. I don't remember how uh, my wife was doing it. I just know that there were a lot of us around and the house was filling up and we had to kill our clones. Okay. Okay. (laughs) So I was led through this dream exercise. I applied this dream exercise. And as I'm making notes, things started coming into focus. I'm walking around my house and there's two or more, of everything. Cases of seltzer, laundry detergent, stacks of unsent graduation (laughs) announcements sitting on the stairs, books. I I actually have two copies of books on the bookshelf, like a bookstore would. Uh, Why do I have two copies of books? In this case, it's like, I don't know, I ended up buying two or three copies, they were autographed copies or something, but I haven't given Uh. them away yet, and they're just adding up. It's just more stuff in my house. Now, I... I, like I look at your place on video i've been to your apartment it's it, you're, it's pretty pretty spiffy like you keep a oh. you keep kind of a Spartan place, and I know you only have eight books um and so like and, and i too i'm generally pretty good at keeping a sparse space uh, sparse space, but it turns out there are a lot of people out there who are not who can't hmm. let go and what occurred to me as i imagine. Just as I've seen the amount of stuff grow in my house, uh, the stuff that I have trouble letting go of, that pandemic anxiety might be uh, revealing some new behaviors in others that is also uh, caused and, and causing anxiety. So today, Tom, I would like to talk to you about hoarding. Ooh.
0: Uh, hoarding has always... Hmm... Hoarding has always, continue. <laughs> no, hoarding, <Chazans>. has always, <laughs> hoarding has always tickled me in an uncomfortable way. Yeah. I don't know how to say what I'm saying, but because I don't have, I really don't have any hoarding tendencies, but something about it seems so insidious or so like what's really going on there. I don't know. It's very interesting and sca- something. It seems very scary to me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But first of all, I think the same way it's easy to like watch a Buster Keaton movie and laugh when he steps on a rake, you know, like laughing at other <laughs> yeah. people's pain. Um, right. I, I think mass media culture has um, has made kind of a cottage industry out of lampooning hoarders, right? Because hmm. visuals of hoarding uh, are extraordinary. Have you ever watched any of like the reality shows around hoarding hoarders?
0: Hoarders, yes. Or, yeah, I've seen hoarders where it's, it's always just stacks of
1: newspapers. News, yes. Yeah. And, and then they right.
0: find a cat under something.
1: Oh, uh,
0: B- yeah. B- B- B. The cat's fine. The cat-, <laughs> the cat eats newspapers. He's doing
1: great. <laughs> well, okay, so first, let's, let's, get, let's just go back to your thing real quick, your thermometer. In, yeah. in the context of hoarding, uh, how do you know when to get rid of it? And for you, you just said, like, when it's not working anymore
0: it's not working,
1: functional. I'm going to let it go. Right. Correct. Uh, you know, you, you might be somebody who collects thermometers, right? What's the difference between a hoarder and a collector? Well, it turns out there are some things. <laughs> if, if you're living with hoarding disorder, and I should say there is no, as far as I could figure out, there is no official diagnosis of hoarding disorder, but a lot of people think there should be. Uh, it is mm. usually tied to other comorbid conditions. We'll talk about that in a second. Got
0: it. Can it, we it, call it dishoarding?
1: It's if you're, float, isn't floating. that if you're unhoarding? Because the dishoarding oh, would point. be like, yeah, good point. And then you could be a rehoarder. If you just own nothing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
0: You're just sitting in an empty room. <laughs> right,
1: right. Uh, if you're living with hoarding disorder, though, you you uh, likely compulsively collect objects or animals or books or papers, photos, clothes, containers, food. Uh, according to the National Alliance on Mental Illness. You might even hoard garbage and human waste. What? People who struggle with hoarding behavior likely live alone. They are three times more likely to be obese than the average person. They are also perfectionistic, and they have at least one other family member that is a hoarder. That's, oh. the, that's the bananas part, that uh, no, one, no one really knows when hoarding starts. But a lot yeah. of clinicians believe that it's it's connected with your genetic history, that accounting for 50% of hoarding tendency, tendencies is uh, directly related to genetics. A history oh. of obsessive-compulsive disorder, one in four people with OCD have some sort of compulsive hoarding behavior and some other trauma that is related to some sort of PTSD. It's also comorbid with substance abuse disorder and depression and anxiety and schizophrenia yeah. and dementia. And that's why... I think my bold thesis is <laughs> is that you like when you say that's always tickled me in a kind of uncomfortable way because when we are living with anxiety I think we're always like a brush stroke away from some of these behaviors that uh that feel like I, yeah I could go down that that direction oh, I so could go there a... pretty quickly there, but for the grace of God, go I. Kind exactly, of thing. exactly, and that's why it's so scary, and why it's so serious. Right? It's so serious. Oh, yeah. So I started watching some of these. Um, th- this morning was a. <laughs> Dark place. <laughs> so I'm prepping for this because I'd already looked up all the research. So I thought, you know, I've never really sat down to watch these hoarding shows, right? I, I just yeah. am, they've never really been something that I thought would would appeal to me. And so I started watching some British ones. Jasmine Harmon uh, on the Only Human show. It's a, I think it's a BBC show, and she she did a Biggest Hoarders documentary, and has done several since about helping hoarders. Her mother was a hoarder, and she is she spent a lot of time investigating this. And uh, there are some. Just some quotes that really stuck with me. I I look at all these books as friends. Every one of these things is a friend. Uh, When asked, how do all these things get on the floor? And the response is, well, they fall. But there's never any discussion of getting them picked up. It's just more stuff gets put where they were. And these homes are so full of things, trash, food, rusted cans of food that has has not been eaten that might have been opened and put back on the shelf like it is an extraordinary 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 um uh, like just destruction of a life through stuff yeah. but here's the trick all of them have the same sort of of um of scenario that the the people who who are dealing with hoarding have developed a relationship with objects as fast right. and as deeply as we develop relationships with other people, right? And animals, too, right? You have people who hoard animals and thereby end up neglecting animals horribly because there are too many animals. Because there's too many. Yeah, there are too many But animals. I
0: get the idea... I shouldn't say I get it. It's more accessible to me having that uh, uh, behavior towards an animal, towards a living thing that you're yeah. getting from. Towards cans or newspapers, I just don't, I can't make that
1: connection. I don't know if that connection is in there, but I, there was one gentleman who, who had kind of a behavior that I could really relate with. And he had mm-hmm. been a hoarder for decades, and his house was a disaster. You know, he couldn't move, he couldn't walk up and down the stairs safely, um, he was, every step in his house was stepping on garbage, uh, paper, Oof. old food. So there was no exposed floor anymore. Just aisles and aisles of things. Oof. Walking into uh, to the house with uh, the wife, who is not a hoarder, but has been effectively enabling the hoarding behavior of her husband. Yeah. Um, you know, the the uh, reporter says, what's in there? It's a room, it's a doorway, and the room is completely full to the brim you it looks like a closet that's just been stuffed full and and the woman says well that's the living room i haven't been in there in about 12 years um <laughs> right i mean it's just closed with stuff you just can't get in there anymore and so um you know the the behavior though when talking about how to move through this and try to try to get control of it is this gentleman kept saying you know i want to i i understand i i know that i need I need some help, but I want to evaluate every single item before it leaves my house. Right. I want to make sure okay. that I'm not giving up on a relationship, right? That's the, that's the subtext. I want to make sure that I'm not selling some, something close to me, something close to my heart that is imbued with feeling, right? That I'm giving it some life. I'm anthropomorphizing it somehow. Right. And that's why I'm is keeping it, it around.
0: Are they related to memories? Possibly. Is, it, is it like getting rid of something is sort yeah. of, in a way, analogous to getting rid of part of yourself?
1: Possibly. But what's interesting about it then is when you have the right kind of therapy, and they demonstrated some of this cognitive behavior therapy that that's going on in here, they are great examples of people who... Um, you know, they they find a way to enjoy their space and time. They're able to let go of things with the right coaching. But this thing that stuck with me is the they kind of ended on the money quote in this particular documentary Is a woman who's who's a hoarder and and she said, you know, I love having my family over at my house now. I love having them, you know, be able to walk through my kitchen. I love being able to cook and uh, I love that I was able to get rid of all these things. And she takes a beat and comes back and says, oh, I'm still a hoarder. Oh. Yeah, right? What? That That there is co- a, a, an ever-present fear. It's like once an addict, always an addict, you know? Yeah. Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. Once a hoarder, always a hoarder. There is, it is just any, like, you get this sense that any second she's going to find a coffee can and and develop a very deep relationship with it and never be able to give it away. Uh, wow. It's it's terrifying just the act of reading the statistics made me feel a sense of just like at the same time a bereft like hopelessness about uh, that because some of this stems from the emotional psychological disorder of trauma and ocd and all these things that are that we live with and some of it is exacerbated by consumer culture and like all of these things like i i don't i just can't imagine in you know the year twelve hundred that people were, you know, collecting spears and sticks, um, and, you know, as they're riding through the English countryside. I, I just don't imagine that they would be just a cave full yeah, of dinosaurs. Yeah, cave- <laughs> <laughs> no, it's like you know, like was Robin Hood a hoarder? I don't know. I I, right. I have a hard time imagine that, but. I I Rub from the rich and keep it. you <laughs> <laughs> you right from the rich and put it in there. From the rich and King, put it in King there. King Richard was actually the first hoarder and uh so uh, anyway,
0: I think one of the things that also tackles not no, uh, tickles within me is it seems like visual anxiety. Yes. In that when you when your anxiety is getting worse and worse and worse, it's all inside and it, you know it can become unmanageable or you reach a, t- a tipping point. Yeah. Having that kind of like That amount, there's no floor left. You can't even go in that room. It almost seems like there's just too much to tackle. Yeah. Like, how do you even start? And so maybe just let it... It's almost just like denying something. That's really rough.
1: Yeah. Well, and that is... It it goes back to where we we started, like looking as I'm walking around my house, seeing two of everything, recognizing that I'm tickled in this kind of way and the pandemic (laughs) exacerbates that. Like I start to feel like, oh, yeah, I can see how I I can see that there is a path from where I am right here to closing off my living room, right? There is a path. I don't know that I'm walking on it right now. I'm aware of it. But I know what it feels like. I can put myself there in, and it's uncomfortable. I, I don't like it, uh, and I think it's um, it's it's really scary, and it's it's very real, and it's not funny at all. We laugh because if we weren't laughing, we would be crying. Like that's that's pretty much it. Um, so, how do you feel? Are you feeling okay?
0: No, I am feeling good. I was thinking how embarrassed I would be if my camera fell off and hit the desk, and you just see. Piles of thermometers. (laughs) (laughs) And I'd be like, oh, my friends! I'm a collector! I'm a collector! All so much for joining us for this episode. This week's tune is "Lucky Me" by Offerin. I'm Pete Wright, and I'm Tommy Metz the Third. Thank you for downloading. We'll be back next week on What's That Smell?